I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Move the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host, and my guest this week is Ben Channon. Ben is an associate at Asale Architecture, where he joined, a firm he joined in 2012. He's also the mental health wellbeing ambassador at that firm, and I believe the firm's won quite a number of awards in the kind of mental health and wellbeing space, which I'm sure we'll talk about. He's also an accredited mindfulness practitioner. He's a well-being accredited professor. He's founded and chaired Architects Mental Wellbeing Forum. Also lectured on well-being and architecture at Liverpool and Edinburgh universities. Uh, more recently gave a TEDx talk, which I watched this morning. It's really good. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And that was in 2018. But he's also written for UK, Irish and Australian journals and, and publications like The Times, The Telegraph, The Architects Journal. And he describes writing his first book, which implies there's more to come. We can perhaps explore that. But it's called Happy by Design, and that was published in September 2018 as well, to discuss how the environment affects mood and mental health. And you describe that book as being written by accident, which is interesting. Maybe we can touch on that as well. But we're going to focus, obviously, a lot on the impact of the environment on mood and mental well-being. But firstly, Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, Leah. Great to meet you. Yeah, and you, and you. I'm really looking forward to this, actually. It's quite an interesting angle that we've not particularly touched on, not directly anyway, on the podcast. So let's get into it. Just give us a bit of context, though. Do you want to give us, t- talk us through your backstory and why this became important to you? I would imagine your personal experience has put a lot of weight behind this interest, but tell us the story. Yeah, absolutely. So I just trained as a more traditional architect, really. Mental health was never something that was massively on my radar until really probably about five or six years ago and I had my own problems with anxiety unfortunately and I had a difficult couple of years learning how to deal with that and learning kind of how to live with anxiety as as a daily problem. How did it manifest for you? So it actually funnily enough manifested through physical symptoms initially because I knew so little about mental health, I had no idea that I was suffering with anxiety. I think potentially now, five, six years on, there actually is a lot more knowledge out there and and people are much more aware of mental health. So I think perhaps if it had happened to me now, I would have spotted some of the signs and symptoms. But back then I had absolutely no idea Mm. what any of the symptoms really were of, of of a mental health problem. And so I Just would before be, you go on, sorry to interrupt, what were, do you mind sharing with us what the physical symptoms were? I think it would be helpful for people because uh, that's often the way the body tries to really drive it home to you, I'm not well, is by giving you physical symptoms because we're ignoring the mental ones, whether it's through naivety or ignorance or just powering on through. What were some of those physical symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not, not a problem at all. So one of the symptoms I have was this recurrent tonsillitis that whatever they tried, whatever antibiotics they gave me wouldn't go away until eventually I, they actually had to take my tonsils out after six months of trying all these different drugs. 
it was ongoing, lots and lots of small physical sicknesses, really, things that seemed like flu or, or whatever they were, and got to the point where I started to actually think of myself as being quite a, quite a sickly person. Mm. I'm not a sickly person at all, and now, thankfully, I, I rarely have physical health problems um, because I've dealt with the underlying mental health problem that I, I didn't know was there. Mm. Okay, great. So following on from that, really, um, kind of getting a diagnosis that I was, I was having a problem with my anxiety, that led me to discover all these worlds that I didn't know existed, you know, the, the worlds of, of mindfulness and, and those sort of topics. And that's really what helped get me through it. And, and then I became just very, very interested in, in that subject of mental health. And I suppose it was quite natural, really, that I would try to sort of see the connection between my job and my, my initial passion of architecture mm. and this other world that was very, very new to me and that I was just discovering. And to question, yeah, how, how were the buildings, not only the buildings that I was designing, but the buildings that I'd been living in, how were they affecting me or the, how were the buildings I was designing affecting the people who were using them? Mm. Do you think that your environment in terms of the physical building was one of the drivers towards your anxiety or... A contributor in some way or was was there a direct correlation sorry to your personal experience around the environment and buildings or did you just think it was a novel way of approaching anxiety it's a challenging question that to see how much can you allocate a building's impact on your mental health i talk quite a lot in my talks about everyone being on a bell curve of mental health you know and but mm. most of the time are, are pretty much somewhere in the middle we're not you know in a terrible way but we're also probably not at our optimum and we're not thriving the most yeah agreed and I think that I was probably you know during those years I was kind of either a student or I was then living in shared houses in London which for anyone who's been through that experience you don't get a lot for your money and you're you know often it would be five of us in a house not that much sort of shared social space and mm. yeah all in all um probably not that conducive to great mental health um mm. I think it probably would have been an issue that I would have had to confront at some point anyway, due to a number of other factors in my life, probably a lot to do with overwork and stress as well, and my, my attitude towards, I think, probably. But my general attitude and the thing that I, I tend to say is that your built environment, the architecture you surround yourself with, it's never going to be the thing that causes you major depression, and it's never going to be the thing at the same time that cures a mental illness. But what I believe our surroundings can do is push us a few percent up or down that bell curve and maybe even more maybe even more than a few percent mm. and so we're seeing it now in in the workplace in in, the, in architecture and it's expanding beyond that mm. that employers are really pushing now for these high quality workplaces because they realize the impact that can have on people's mindsets and on staff retention on staff productivity it's having yeah it does have a huge effect on us and people are really clocking onto that now I completely agree. And I think environment has a huge impact actually on our mental well-being and physical well-being. You know, if you consider the difference between sitting outside in nature and sitting inside a, a dark, dingy building, or and actually this is what I was going to ask you, when you talk about environment, when you use that term, are you strictly speaking about the building from an architectural perspective or just a, the physical presence of a building? Or are you including the furnishings within that your proximity to other people and other aspects of the environment, sunlight, heat, temperature, and so on. No, I mean, I'm including everything that I suppose kind of an environment, as an environmental psychologist would see it, everything in our world around us from, from that moment you open your eyes in the morning, just the world that surrounds you. 
And that's not just a building, that's the spaces between buildings as well. Mm-hmm. But having said that, most estimates put us at spending between 80 and 90% of our time inside now. So clearly, yeah, the buildings that we're living in and working in are having an impact on us for much of our waking hours. So how did you develop this interest then into a TEDx talk, a book, and, and obviously something that you're deeply passionate about? So I, really, I started thinking about it and, and wondering if I could actually put together a sort of internal design guide for our company here at Sale. And I was wondering if I could produce a document that I could circulate to staff here and really just to help us improve the buildings that we were designing. And we've always prided ourselves on being a very sort of people-driven company anyway, but I, I just really wanted us to push that quality aspect as far as we could and create the very, very best buildings we possibly could. And for me, yeah, a big part of that is understanding the emotional and psychological impacts that our buildings can have on people. And I realized I was finding lots and lots of studies out there in the worlds of sort of environmental psychology and neuroscience and medicine, people doing fascinating surveys and studies and writing amazing papers. But I realized that as an architect, I had never been taught this stuff. It wasn't taught to me at architect school. Mm. It's not particularly... I think something that's ever directly referred to in our journals, we, we don't see a lot of necessarily kind of bringing in knowledge from these other, I would say, more, more medical or psychological spheres. Um, so I, I realized I could feed that into this design guide. And, and actually, after sort of, I found so much amazing research out there that I realized it could probably become more than a design guide. And it, it turned into this book, which as I said in my TED talk, kind of it happened all in a bit of a blur, really. And before I knew it, I had enough material there for a book. Yeah, brilliant. So what are some of the ideas that you've got then? Or put another way, what would a, if you were designing a building now to provide optimum possibilities for people within that building to be well and healthy and mentally well and healthy, what would the properties of that building be? So, I mean, I broke down the research and evidence that I found into a series of chapters because I, mm-hmm. I, I felt that it, and they naturally kind of gravitated towards these chapters. So they are things like light and nature and comfort, things that perhaps do seem on the surface quite obvious. I would, certainly to me as an architect, I would say we should be living in and working in buildings that are full of natural daylight. They're full of plants and nature and, you know, they're comfortable for us to be in, to spend time in. And, you know, on a more, perhaps on a, on a less measurable scale, they make us more mindful of our surroundings. They make us want to engage with our surroundings and actually appreciate where we are and enjoy where we are. And Mm. it was interesting trying to strike that balance in the book between the very measurable and objective stuff, you know, things like acoustic levels, daylight levels. And then on the other hand, the rather more subjective things, you know, getting the right atmosphere, getting the right proportions. And it's much harder to give a rule of thumb for those. Mm. It's areas like that where actually an architect really proves their worth and kind of earns their money. Mm. So let's break some of that down then. I mean, what are some of the ways that you can bring nature or replicate nature and the benefits of nature in a building? So I often say that this is one of the easiest ones. A question I get asked quite a lot is, if you were to do sort of one small thing to your home or to your office, what would it be? And I think bringing in plants is just such a simple way to do that. There's some absolutely amazing, we're talking about this research from neuroscience, amazing studies out there where, for example, one I was learning about just last week, actually, was a group of researchers put people in a room, put them in a blindfold and got them to touch different materials. I think there was steel, there was marble, 
there was and there was timber. And they found with, with the natural woods and natural materials that actually people's heart rates would slow down, their prefrontal wow. yeah, prefrontal cortex activity would calm down. And actually, you know, it had a real physical impact on them, which is obviously then those sort of physical effects are going to have an impact on your, your mental state. Mm. And so for me, just something as simple as bringing a plant into a room can, can have a huge impact. But, you know, we go right up to putting in large green walls in buildings, which is the kind of very other end of the spectrum, which can be quite an expensive thing to do. But again, it's a really dramatic way of kind of encouraging people to engage with nature and really notice the nature. But also, I think it can become a bit of a statement piece as well, certainly in a kind of corporate environment, having this big green wall, it's, it's serving two functions. It's bringing that greenery in, but it's also saying we care about this, we're, we're passionate about this. It was Lendlease, I think, who created, I'm sure they're not the only company, but the only one I'm aware of, who created this huge wall of greenery. I'm not sure if the office was in London or not. Do you remember that one? I'm not sure there's a few of them around, yeah. But yeah. a good thing about them is that the technology has advanced so much in the last sort of 15, 20 years that they're, they're much, much easier to keep alive now, I think, in the early days. Yeah. It wasn't always the case. But, no, um, I'm sure not. I mean, it can be quite difficult to keep a houseplant alive sometimes. Yeah. I lost one in the last few months without thinking about a whole wall in a huge corporate building. But uh, I learned this new phrase, actually, uh, about a year ago, and I interviewed somebody... I'll link in the show notes. I'm, I'm sort of blanking right now on her name, but she's introduced a new term to me, which is biophilia, which is I'm sure very familiar with, but it's the idea of bringing nature indoors. Have I got that definition right? Yeah, well, sort of. So biophilia has existed. It's been a kind of concept. I think it was, it first came about in the, the early 70s. It may even have been the end of the 60s. And it's, the theory really is it's more that we as humans are naturally, we're drawn to nature. We are comfortable mm-hmm. in nature. We evolved over billions of years within nature. And so it's it's only natural, really, that we should feel comfortable in that environment. Mm. And I think, yeah, we we as architects, sometimes we're educated and taught, we're taught to understand all of the different building materials at our disposal. But actually, one of the most powerful materials can be nature and plants itself, I think. Yeah, I mean, I love being outdoors and we've made a real effort. I bought a cheese plant for the office, which is, as we were saying before we went online, just down the road. It's not a big office. It's a small two-person unit. And this cheese plant is taking over. It's like the day of the Triffids or something. It is taking over the office. I'm going to have to find a way to break it down. But we got that because I think it's very good at putting oxygen back into the air, back into the, the room. And it is nice to have some sort of greenery and some sort of plant there. We've got some house plants here as well. But the best thing for me, and it's not always possible in a work environment, is just to get out into the garden where I'm surrounded by plants and shrubs and flowers and so on. So I'm completely sold on the importance of getting more nature into our lives. And particularly given we spend so much time at work or in an office. And that, that as you say, is an easy one to resolve. What about light? I mean, that must be a, a key challenge for an architect. It is, and certainly sort of in urban environments, which we are moving towards urban environments now, I think it's half the world lives in urban environments. Light overshadowing are going to become issues that are just been going to become more and more important to architects. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because, again, it's interesting to me that you mentioned the physical health side of things there because Obviously, the two are so intrinsically linked and a big way that light affects our physical health is, is how it impacts our sleep. And I'm sure you know all about kind of circadian rhythms and all of that. But yep. as I think they kind of found during the 80s and 90s, as we moved away from 
the kind of celebration of natural light that we had before to lots of these big banks of sort of uh, fluorescent tube artificial lighting in offices mm. that actually it's really messed up people's circadian rhythms it was you know it, too much blue light in the evenings or blue blue shades cold shades of light in the evenings which basically tricks your brain into thinking it's the morning and then surprise surprise you get home and you can't sleep and mm. you wake up the next day and you have to drink loads of coffee to stay awake which is also mm. terrible for your mental health so yeah, it's quite easy to underestimate the impact that light can have. But that that physical side of things is something that does interest me as well. Particularly, as I said, that the way that physical and mental health they're in this kind of feedback loop, and that was something I certainly noticed myself. Suffering anxiety would be that I would it would be going on in my head, and then I get a physical response in my body, which would then make me feel more anxious in my head. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that relationship between physical and mental is is fascinating and it's it's one of the reasons that i studied the well-building standard which you you mentioned at the top of the show and just qualified as an accredited well professional which basically is a an amazing standard that's not been around that long really certainly hasn't been in the uk that long it started in the states and it's a way of demonstrating that a building is good for our well-being good for your health and well-being and so that similar to my book, looks at a number of different topics and really analyzes a building in terms of yeah, how it affects you both physically and mentally. Okay. So we've talked about nature and biophilia and house plants being a very easy way to do that. Talked a bit about light and, and people who know the show, what we, I've talked about this before, the importance of not exposing yourself to blue light at the wrong times of day and getting lots of natural light throughout the whole day. What else do you kind of factor in when you talk about the environment and its impact on mental health? So something that really interests me, actually, is the way that the environment can actually change our behaviours. And that can be very, very subtle. And I think, in a way, I find it interesting the way economists talk about kind of nudges and nudging people's behaviour and these nudge units that work with the government to encourage good behaviours and push us away from bad behaviours. And I think buildings definitely have the power to do that as well. So buildings, for example, can, can encourage us to be more sociable so it can be something as small as simply having one tea point in the office it might be quite a big office but the temptation would be to put in three or four different tea points in the different corners of the office but actually if you design the office in such a way that it has one central tea point firstly it means probably everyone's walking a little bit further which is good for them physically and Mm -hmm. obviously you get the added mood benefits of getting a bit of exercise getting away from your desk yep but then it also massively encourages people from all different corners of the office to cross paths. It means that you're sort of doubling, tripling, quadrupling your the range of people that you're socially interacting with, which, again, the importance of that kind of social interaction and also a larger support network on your mental health can be absolutely huge. So I think something that emerged to me over the course of, of writing the book was, yes, there are some really obvious things we can do. We can make sure that we're being comfortable in, in a building and it's got lots of natural light and plants but there's also these slightly subtler things that really do just just change the way we live our daily lives yeah i work with a company that, that do a number of little nudges so for example they'll have footprints that guide you towards the stairs rather than the escalator mm-hmm. so it just tries to promote a bit more movement i think all that stuff is it's really effective and really really important as well little things like that we can just just nudge people into taking the the better path for their health. Yeah. What else? What else do you take into consideration? So what we covered? We covered nature, light, little nudges in the workplace around movement. So a big thing I talk about quite a lot as well is control and giving people 
autonomy, you know, control over their own environment, whether that's something as small as being able to personalize your desk space, which there's lots of studies mm. personalization showing that it can make you more productive, it makes people happier, again, better staff retention rates, or it can be a much, much bigger thing. So giving residents in an apartment building, you know, control over the funding or something like that. And those sort of elements of buildings and of where we live have a really big impact on us. And, mm. you know, there's been lots of studies into the fact that um, if you're on a if you're on a crowded bus or train and you feel really, if you have the control and the ability to open a window, it has a positive impact on not only on your mood, but on your ability to tolerate the temperature, even if the temperature doesn't drop. And that's, mm. that kind of suggests that even, even having perceived control, even if, you know, the control isn't really, it's not doing much for you, but even that, that perceived level of control can have a positive impact on how you feel. So mm-hmm. that for me is something that's very interesting. The way that we as designers of buildings can kind of let people, let people take control of the buildings they're using rather than, I think, at times historically, there's there's been more of an attitude of, you know, we're going to design the perfect building and, and explain to people exactly how they're going to use it. To me, it's very interesting to actually say, let's design a building and see it as a backdrop or a framework that people can then choose to use how they would like to and live their lives in a way that they want to. Mm. Okay. And an interesting thing we're seeing, sorry if I've got time. Yeah, on go that, ahead. An interesting thing we're seeing on that now is the rise of the rise of, kind of apps and how apps are playing a part in that. So. We work on a lot of larger build-to-rent development schemes and often the residents in there will be given apps and, and they'll basically, through the apps, it, it's a way to empower them to choose certain things about how what's offered in the building. And also apps can give the building management then, they, they can ask questions of the residents so they can get feedback and data to better understand their residents, which then helps them tailor the building to what the residents actually want and need. And for me, yeah, that the way that technology is going to impact the way we use buildings is yeah, absolutely fascinating. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. What's your office set up like then? So you obviously go and talk about this a lot subject close yeah. to your heart. You've read the studies and the research and you understand what it is that, you know, the, the intersection of the environment and, and mental well being. How do you have your own desk? I mean, how big's the firm? So we're, uh, I think we're 98, 99 staff now. Okay. So just set to break the 100 mark, I think. And we are very, very lucky here. Actually, we moved offices, I think it's about three and a half years ago down Putney. And we've got a fantastic space. And it's split over two floors. And, and the, the management made the decision very early on to kind of keep all of the, the day job, the hard work stuff up on the first floor. Yeah. So we've got a big open plan first floor. Lots of metal boards with drawings pinned up all over the place, which is nice. You know, brings in a bit of color and makes you feel sort of part of a exciting work environment and big floor to ceiling windows but then a ground floor which is this really nice kind of double height space which is again something i talk about in in the book higher ceilings been linked to these this idea of kind of psychological freedom and less oppressive mm. and that has been kept entirely for a pool table down here which i'm sorry if, if you can hear that in the background i have heard a couple yeah i thought it sounded like that which yeah we've got a pool table down here which gets pretty much used all day every day mm. And then these really nice private working spaces and some quiet meeting rooms down here. Mm. And of course, full of plants. So yeah, we are we are very lucky. It's a really, really nice place to work. Yeah, sounds it. And um, if you don't mind me asking, Ben, you know, when you sort of repaired your mental health, what were some of the things that were really important to you in that recovery process? I think a big thing for me was sort of stepping away from the world of architecture and design. It was really 
appreciating the importance and value of my time and my personal time. I think like a lot of young architects, I had kind of got to the point where particularly the university process in architecture, if you don't know much about it, is quite an intense one and mm-hmm. lots of all-nighters. And I think there is a bit of a, an emphasis on kind of the work comes first and there's an element of sacrifice there. And I think I was probably pushing myself too hard, not giving myself enough downtime or beating myself up about it when I did give myself downtime. Mm. And one of the biggest changes I've, I've had to make in my life really, and thank goodness I did, was to really appreciate the importance of that downtime. And, you know, it, actually it, it's fine to go home, you know, finish your work on time, go home on time, go and watch a movie or go and play football or whatever it is. And don't feel, don't feel bad about not working 24 hours a day. That's, that's a big mm. revelation to me. Really. Mm. As I, I mentioned, mindfulness, um, I still try to meditate every day. I find it's incredibly useful for me, understanding and regulating my emotions, having a better understanding of, sort of where my thoughts are every day. Have you, have you had professional help with that? With meditation? No, with regulating thoughts and emotions. And So when I first had my problems with anxiety and the GP sent me to have some CBT, which was for people who don't know it, it's cognitive behavioural therapy. And it's really a way of looking at your thoughts and gaining a bit of a better understanding of what's going on in your brain. And when you're suffering from things like anxiety, exactly why those feelings are occurring and kind of just repeatedly asking and why are you feeling like that and why and thinking about okay why are you anxious what's the worst thing that could possibly happen in this scenario you're anxious about and actually realizing often it's never as bad as you think it is I think that's probably some quite a common thing that a lot of us can relate to yeah agreed yeah and um, meditation what's your meditation practice so yeah I, I try to meditate each morning generally only for about 10 minutes you know I don't again I I think with my personality, I could probably get quite easily addicted to doing a lot more than that. So 10 minutes in a day, I think is enough for me. And I trained with the Mindfulness Association in uh, their, their centre in South London, which was fantastic. The year-long mindfulness practitioner course, which I would definitely recommend to people who'd like to learn more. Mm-hmm. But I also, I initially got into it through the Headspace app and other apps like Calm, which are fantastic. I, again, yeah. would really recommend to use those very useful yeah and now i've brought it to my workplace and i run mindfulness sessions here with staff at work which they seem to really enjoy and we've even started doing some mindful drawing classes which have been a real hit Mm. very cool (laughs) well i think we've talked about quite a bit but a lot of it i think you could apply if you were an architect or if you run a company and you have some control over the building but I think there's a lot that anyone, you know, who works in a building has very little control over it can also do because anyone can bring a plant in. Anyone can go out every 60 minutes and get access to natural light. You know, it, it, most of us can personalize our office space to a degree. It does remind me, actually, when we talk about plants and personalization, I used to work in a building, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, where my colleague had so many plants that it started to look like the Eden Project. And that was the joke. I mean, you literally couldn't see her for plants. But actually, where that particular building we were in was on Leadenhall Street. And it was an old building with, with quite dirty and quite small windows. And it felt really oppressive, this huge, quite high ceilings, this huge, thick wooden door. <clears throat> so it did feel quite oppressive. And we moved to Old Broad Street, the old stock exchange building, which is a glass-fronted building. And there was a bit of dispute. They, you know, the, they wanted to put me facing a wall. I said, are you joking? Put me opposite a window. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. I should be facing a wall in a glass-fronted building. But the difference to how I felt about that environment was quite profound, going from the sort of dark, slightly ominous 
atmosphere that I perceived to be in, in Leadenhall Street and then moving to Ward Street with these beautiful glass-fronted buildings and light everywhere. It really does make a huge difference. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot that people can do individually to try and make the best of their surroundings, bring things in, personalise the desk, get out and access light, get whatever autonomy you can. It's interesting, though. It's I think environment is a really, really key part of, of mental well-being. I always encourage people to look at the environment, whether that's the people you're surrounded by. Are they drains or are they radiators? You know, do they sap your energy or do they light you up? To the colours, the sounds, the smells, the light, everything really about your environment. It's almost you know, the first place to start if you're suffering, I think, from mental well-being. But Absolutely, yeah. And it's interesting you should say that. The, the building you move to where rather than facing a wall, you're facing a window. It might seem like a small thing, but if that's making you happier about coming into work every single day, the mm. positive impact that that's going to have on your overall disposition is going to, it's going to be enormous, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And when I wrote the book, I deliberately tried to write it. So it's not just for architects. I wrote mm. it so that it could be understood. You know, my mum could understand it. You know, it's written for anybody to really enjoy. And it's hopefully got lots of advice in there for people who, whether it's just want to make a small change to the bathroom or whether they want to completely, you know, redesign the gardens of a stately home, there's stuff in there that you could, you could mm. take, take on board. Yeah, completely agree. Well, congratulations on everything you've achieved up to now. I look forward to seeing what else you do. The book is called Happy by Design. It's out, it's presumably on Amazon. In fact, it is because I've, I've seen yeah. it there. TEDx Talk can be found by either clicking on the link in the show notes or just putting Ben Chan and TEDx into Google, which is all I did. Ben, thanks very much for your time. No worries. Thanks so much, Leanne. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotsperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals. Sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.